This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you from AMI-tv. The Committee of Parties, also known as COP27, concluded last week. Joining us to reflect on some of the discussions that took place is Lawrence Gunther, the host of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther, heard on AMI-audio on Sundays at 3 p.m. and is available as a podcast. Lawrence, good morning. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. So we, what are some of the key takeaways from the COP27 conference in Egypt? Well, th- things just wrapped up. They went all weekend to, to get a deal struck. And, uh, you know, by Friday, it didn't look like there was going to be a deal. It looked like uh, there wasn't much progress made on any front, and a deal was just not going to happen. You know, they, they, they pulled it out of the fire, though. On Sunday, they, they got there. And uh, what they managed to do is set up a lost and damage fund. This is the first time in 27 years of meetings, and they meet every year, that uh, a recognition of the impact on, you know, what we call third world or developing countries uh, by, you know, the developed countries has been acknowledged. You know, we, you know, we're always thinking about the big picture, the world, and we're thinking about ourselves, our belly buttons. But, you know, we hear these stories all the time from these other countries, these less fortunate countries that are really feeling the, um, the brutal impact of climate change. So this lost and damaged fund will be a place where rich countries can put money and then pay it out to these these developing countries for the damages they've incurred, not sort of like a, a lawsuit, but to help them rebuild and recover uh, and uh, to build resilience into their their country, into their uh, whether it's the people, the the cities, the towns, nature, what have you. Now that's good news, but you know, like, you know, one step forward, two step back—that that's the case here again. So you know, where we got those two steps back, one is, um, you know, the money has not yet been allocated to this, uh, it, and now we have a Republican uh, House in the United States, a Republican-led House in the United States. So that means getting the majority Republican leadership in the House to vote for this type of financing of this lost uh, fund, lost renewal fund. The other issue is um, at the last minute, some of the oil-rich countries blocked um, a resolution that we would uh, agree to phase out coal and oil fuel use. And that was blocked at the end. Canada was disappointed in that, as well were many other countries. For sure. And I think something like that was uh, quite... Uh, quite understandable why uh, something like that would happen. But as you mentioned, too, this was uh, this was not a deal that was necessarily set to be made at this conference because the conference was supposed to end, I believe, on Friday, and they kept extending it until Sunday until they could actually get this this deal signed. So that, that was a, a huge change that a lot of people didn't see coming uh, af- at least halfway through the conference. But uh, one of the issues that pertain to Canada in particular is that we need to focus on the resiliency of nature as well as the impacts of and effects of climate change. Why is that so important? 
You know, there's two words that I've wrapped my head around or I tried to, and, and you hear the media using the words mitigation and resilience, and sometimes it's used interchangeably. This is how I see it and, and um, or understand it. Mitigation is, you know, to stop it from happening, to reduce it, you know, to make it less so. So when we're talking about climate change, how do we deal with climate change? You know, we can block it, we can try to block it, but really what we have to do is get to the source. We have to stop the fuel using a fossil fuels and 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 it stops um, giving climate change its energy to to change, right? If we take away the uh, the the emphasis and and climate change will slow down and stop in how we measure that. We said, well, if we can keep it down below one point five degree temperature increase by uh, twenty fifty or by the end of the century, We've done well. Anything more than that, and we're going to have big problems. Well, we look. It looks like we're on that path already to have big problems. We we haven't. We're not reaching our 1.5 degree temperature goal as set out in the Paris Accord, and that was in the COP meeting in 2015, where all, all the countries agreed that we wouldn't surpass 1.5 temperature increase by the end of the century. We're all the countries, for the most part, all the countries that are producing fossil fuels and, and, and contributing to climate change are failing to meet their their commitments to the Paris Accord, including Canada. So that's on the mitigation front. You know, we've got to work on that. There's more work to be done on that for sure. But in Canada's case, you know, we're one of the... Canada has some of the most expansive nature in the world, and we have a lot of, we have a lot of nature. We have a lot of uh, shoreline. We have the longest coastline of any country in the world. We're, you know, part of the largest freshwater uh, systems, watersheds in the world with the Great Lakes. We share that with the United States. You know, we have tons of rivers and lakes and and forests, and. Um, we have a lot of agriculture, we have cities, we have coastal communities, and we've been watching as all of this is being impacted by climate change right here in Canada. So, you know, as much as we are consider ourselves uh, one of the few countries, you know, benefits that, that have economic prosperity, a group of seven kind of leader nation, we're also right up there with the, all the other countries that are being impacted heavily by climate change. And this is where resilience comes in. You know, taking our foot off the pedal of um, reducing or mitigating climate change is not the case if we're going to work on resilience. You know, it's not one or the other. And and I know like four or five years ago, people used to think, well, if we if we take our focus off mitigating climate change, you know, we're, we're admitting defeat by sort of preparing our communities for increased flooding or storm surges along the coast or more heat, you know, extreme heat or more extreme weather, more storms, more uh, flooding in, 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 you know, central Canada. You know, these are all impacts of climate change. And we need to sort of think about what does that, how can we prepare instead of just respond? Because if we're just always responding, we're pouring a lot of money. Insurance companies are spending a lot of money. Governments are spending a lot of money. People are losing a lot and spending a lot of money to constantly rebuild, recover, and get back to get back to normal. If we can prepare better, we might not have to spend so much money to recover because the recoveries will be less impactful. The storm the climate change events will be less impactful. Absolutely. Now that's no excuse, right? That's no excuse to stop mitigation. It doesn't have to be. Now in in terms of when we're talking about climate change, the impacts of climate change, 
oftentimes, in, in my perspective, it's always kind of seen as a bubble. It's always, okay, the weather and storm systems is really mm-hmm. where, where you witness it. But it, it's also witnessed in the natural world. You, you did a great job of laying out how much nature lives within our country, how we're yeah. surrounded by nature in every step. So do you have specific examples of how nature has been affected by climate change? Yeah, it's a good point because, you know, sometimes examples bring it home, right? So just recently, you know, I don't know how many of our listeners and watchers, you know, watch that show um, Deadliest Catch. It's filmed out of Alaska on the Northeast uh, Pacific Ocean, you know, the same ocean we share with uh, British Columbia. And the snow crab is a huge fishery up there. It's it's snow crab is probably the most... Um, um, if you have, if you can catch snow crab, you're making money. You're like that's the ultimate crab in terms of uh, commerce. And um, th- we were on track for a, a tremendous year in 2022 because four years ago, they noticed the scientists uh, that track uh, the various crab populations and set the quotas and uh, restrictions. They noticed there was a huge. Um, birth rate of, of uh, young snow crabs taking place four years ago. And they said, wow, this is amazing. And, uh, it, you know, there's going to be so many snow crabs that are reaching maturity and the right size for harvest. Because if they're not big enough, you can't harvest them. You have to put them back. So this was the year that all these snow crabs were supposed to reach that age. Well, it turns out there were so many of them um, that last year they ran out of food down there. There was nothing left for them to eat, right? And it, what do you do with 8 billion snow crab? They they turn to eating each other. And um, as a result, about 7 billion of the 8 billion snow crab disappeared. Now, some people say, well, maybe they left. And they can travel pretty fast. But, you know, 8 billion snow crabs didn't just walk across to Siberia or somewhere else. I mean... They found the remains of a lot of these snow crabs. So the season's closed this year. The season's going to be closed next year and probably the year after that. That's a huge loss to the economy up there. But this is this happened because of a small, very small increase in, in temperature of the, in the temperature of the ocean. That's what triggered this um, birth uh, increase of the snow crabs four years ago, just a two or three degree increase in, in the ocean temperatures. And, and it caused this cannibalism and this complete... Um, collapse of the snow crab population yeah i i remember when i first saw the story saying that they basically don't know where billions of snow crab have gone and you're kind of sitting there and wondering, how can you not know where billions of snow crab have gone i mean the 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 uh, yeah. uh the their grounds are, are pretty specific and pretty mapped out so that was quite a shock and then finding out more of those details of how that impact took place and and another example too that i i remember hearing quite recently was the salmon populations and spawning in BC because of the drought conditions that they were experiencing, that the rivers were Mm. drying up. These spawning uh, beds that the salmon were using were no longer uh, usable due to the change in weather. And these are all just a couple of very direct and specific examples, but this is happening everywhere in our, in our natural environment. Yeah, it is. It is. And, uh, you know, the snow, the, the salmon in the southern part of British Columbia are suffering because the, the, the rivers are just too warm. They're just too warm. They, they don't go up them. If they do go up them, they're exhausted because they're cold-blooded creatures and they have to expend so much energy when their metabolism's running so hot. And then, they, and then the, the river levels are very low. Uh, so it's a big problem. But then if you go further north now, 
you know, we're, you have glaciers up in the up in uh, northern British Columbia and, and Alaska. Those glaciers are melting and they're making tremendous salmon rivers. So the salmon population is, is switching north, so much so that there's now salmon going over Alaska into, into um, the, the Arctic Ocean. And, and the Inuit are now catching salmon. They've never caught salmon before. They don't, you know, what do you do with these fish? What, what about their, their local fish, you know, the fish they've depended on for thousands of years? What does this mean, this invasion of salmon into the Arctic Ocean? So it's just shifting. Everything's shifting. Now, uh, quickly, because we are running out of time here, mm-hmm. are there things that we can do to uh, kind of help mitigate these these impacts? Are there different uh, uh, tools and, and measures we should be trying to enact and put in place here? Well, we definitely have to, you know, pay more attention to the science. We have to invest in the science. You know, things are happening. Uh, we have to understand what's happening. We have to understand how to prepare to, to you know, to stop those things from having a serious effect on us. And and we have to understand, you know, how this is impacting nature too, because this is, this is a, impacting the balance of life. And what happens in nature happens to us, right? This is a one health situation. We're all connected. And we like to think we're in the city. We're not impacting what happens out there in the outdoors. It's not going to impact us. We're safe in our cities and our air-conditioned, heated uh, apartments, condominiums and homes and so forth. You know, we're safe. We're good. But, you know, if we can get people to go out there and understand, you know, through information and get involved with science, get involved with understanding what's happening out there, helping to build the resilience and get involved with that – I think by connecting people to nature through this, we're going to realize that we're all part of the big, same big planet. It's one big blue marble, in a sense, and uh, we need to take care of it because what happens to to nature happens to us, and and vice versa. You know, we got to we have to give back. Absolutely. Now, Lawrence, thank you for this. Uh, before we let you go, what can you uh, let us know about what's coming up in the next episode of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther? Uh, listening to nature, you know, we're 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 looking at the research of how nature speaks to each other. You know how the different animals and plants communicate with each other through sound. How we're learning to interpret that sound, and and a little bit of an uh, updates on some of our um, Iron Man, Blind Iron Man participants, and uh, and outdoor with GPS. We're going to talk about that as well. Amazing! I can't wait to check out that episode, Lawrence. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's Lawrence Gunther, who is the host of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther. And you can be, hear that every Sunday at 3 p.m. Eastern on AMI. You can also follow him on Twitter at Lawrence Gunther. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.